Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Glad you're all here. We are walking through the seven I am sayings of Jesus. And that is found in John's gospel where Jesus makes it unbelievably clear that he is God. All right, so our church is a church that is founded and responding to who God is and the gospel. So our vision is very plain, very simple, down the middle. We are striving to live lives that are faithfully present to God, to ourselves, and to one another. That's the whole of the Christian life. It is not trying to earn salvation, but it's responding to who God is and what God has done. So with that being said, let's take a moment. I'd love to pray um, and just, then we'll just walk through the passage that we have for today. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. I ask that you would help us for the 10,000 things that are distracting this morning. Jesus, you are preeminent over everything. And so we ask now that you become center in our minds and our spirits for the next few minutes together. Would you just help us to push the stresses of life out so that you would be the center of all that we say and do this morning? I pray for my friends here that are not Christians today. I thank you that they're with us pray they feel welcome and loved, and I pray that they would come to know you. I thank you for the saints this morning that know you and are walking with you, continue to put wind in their sails. I pray for the saints this morning that are discouraged and frustrated in their faith, that you would strengthen them as well. Help us to be present to you now, Father, and to your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so here we go. Um, As we talk about the seven I am sayings of Jesus, and today the saying Jesus says, I am the door. When he says that, if you grew up in church like I did, uh, that can quickly become white noise. Like John 3, 16, God so loved the world. A lot of this stuff can quickly become white noise to us because we've heard it all of our lives, for many of us. And so we can tune it out. And that's because we become so familiar with Jesus's words and these ideas that we almost aren't shocked by them, really, especially in like church settings, like in a building like this with a stained glass Jesus like that and all the rest. And I say, I am the door. We all go, yeah, right. And then we kind of glaze over and it really doesn't carry the punch that it would say if you say it tomorrow at lunch at work. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, because Jesus saying, I am the door He's saying, I and I alone and the exclusive way in which a human being can be reconciled to God. No other religion will do it. Not your good works will do it. You need me and me alone to be reconciled to God and to find your purpose as a human being. A whole human in the world is rooted exclusively in me. Not in the apostles, not in the prophets, not in the people in a church, exclusively in me. To say something like that, all of a sudden, it 
cuts like glass, like a diamond. I mean, those are very sharp words. And Jesus was clear. He did not come just to draw a line in the sand. He came to rise from the dead. And so, with that in mind, I'd like to just begin by acknowledging the severity of these words. In fact, I'm going to grab my uh, notes today, so I really, don't worry. It's not a lot of notes. It's just this page. But uh, I want to make sure I, I stay, stay on task. All right, so this week, it got me thinking about, well, what kind of version of Jesus does Seattle want? Like, I rarely meet atheists. In fact, I don't know that atheism is actually a thing. I, I think it's um, the way Paul handles it in Romans 1 is clear. Everyone knows there's a God. It's stamped on our conscience. We're made in his image. Now, we're very good at suppressing the truth, though, and so we'll call ourselves atheists. That tends to be Paul's argument in Romans 1, and I agree with him. But nonetheless, what kind of version does Seattle of Jesus does Seattle want? Because I've got friends that have since left the faith and have a kind of respect for Jesus and admiration of Jesus, um, but, but don't necessarily confess him to be Lord or King or Christ or look to him as a substitute, but more like a great example. What version of Jesus does Seattle want? And is it the one that says, I am the door? The answer is, well, no. If you've ever come across uh, the, the saying that's put in the mouth of Voltaire, Guide Massapin, this guy's like the, the, the ultimate short story teller. So just kind of know that about him. If you are into short stories, he's your guy. Okay. God made man in his own image, but man has certainly paid him back again. And what is the vision that we paint God in. Like, what's the image? God made us in his image, and we return the compliment. Well, here you go. There's a guy named John Hick that was a brilliant theologian, philosopher from England, naturally. <laughs> and, and John Hick uh, wrote a lot of stuff. He lectured in Cambridge and Harvard and all the rest, but he wrote a lot on religious pluralism in particular. And he had a whole lot of things to say that were very insightful and yet misses the mark in the end, but he presents a Jesus that is very palatable to Seattle. Here's what I mean. Here's what he says. I see the Nazarene then as intensely and overwhelmingly conscious of the reality of God. Great. Any problems with that? Nah. He was a man of God living in the unseen presence of God and addressing God as Abba Father. His spirit was open to God and his life a continuous response to the divine love. As both utterly gracious and demanding, he was so powerfully God conscious that his life vibrated, as it were, to the divine life. And as a result, his hands could heal the sick and the poor in spirit were kindled to new life in his presence. Thus, in Jesus' presence, we should have felt that we are in the presence of God. Not in the sense that the man, Jesus, literally is God, but in the sense that he was so totally conscious of God that we could catch something of that consciousness by spiritual contagion. What? That's cool. I mean, so conscious of God that if you hang out enough with him, you might think, this guy is so, he's, he's, almost, he's almost God. 
and almost God is not God. You see, Jesus and his disciples, his disciples did not hang around him in hopes of catching his spiritual contagion. Like, <laughs> how do you say it? Um, you don't get arrested and scourged and spit on for being God conscious. You're not publicly executed in front of your mother naked on a hillside because you happen to have like a spiritual vibe about you. No, you get crucified publicly under Rome at the hands of the Jewish aristocracy because you claim things like, I am one with the Father and all that the Father does, I'm doing. I and the Father are one. I am the sole responsibility. I'm the one to be held accountable in the end for all of creation. All of creation will stand before me. That will get you crucified. Not being God conscious and open to the divine life. That's hardly threatening because all that is is an example. You go, oh, I'd like to be God conscious too. I'd like to be so conscious of God that I could possibly heal people. That's hardly a threat. That's an example. But Jesus is far more than an example. He's our substitute. He is God. He is God. And so in a city like ours, we can applaud statements like that and go, yeah, he's awesome. He's, he sounds awesome. I mean, he's, he's not God. I'm not going to repent before him. I'm not going to give him my life. But he's, he's, he's pretty impressive. Jesus is not looking for you to be impressed with him. He's looking for you to follow him completely. Can we go back one? Overwhelmingly conscious of the reality of God. <laughs> um, that's not what the disciples concluded when he walked on the water. And it's not what the crowds concluded when he spoke into an empty uh, and emptied a grave. He wasn't just conscious of God. And it's so important for us, I think, as Seattleites to get this, that Jesus is not attempting to be God. He's not blurring the line at all. In fact, he's quite clear on who he is and what his purpose is. So, that's John Hick. And then we ask, well, in a day like ours, say we do prove that Jesus is proved to the best of our ability. We are living by faith. But let's say we do prove that Jesus is raised from the dead. I've had two friends in our church over the last two, three weeks mention, what do we do in an apathetic society like ours? Like, okay, great. You proved it. Jesus is raised from the dead. I don't care. What do you do with apathy? How about that? I just don't care about the ontological argument or the teleological argument, the epistemological argument for the existence of God. I don't care. I don't care about all your apologies. I don't care. I'm just going to do me. What do you do with apathy? <laughs> I've been wondering this for a few years being a pastor. What do you do? Well, one, as followers of Jesus, we remember, okay, God is the one that changes people's minds and hearts in the end. One. But two, I've 
often found myself asking my more indifferent and apathetic friends personally, well, how's it going in the world of indifference and apathy? I mean, yeah, so what? Jesus raised from the dead. Yeah, you're right. Okay, fine. Big deal. How's it going for you? Like with the self-actualization thing, like you doing you, you living for you, you like doing your best life here, now, getting after it. How's it going? You good? Like, did the boat do it? You got it. You good now? It's like, no. No. It's like Ecclesiastes 1. The eyes are never filled with seeing. The ears are never filled with hearing. So it is in the heart of people. It's just a big black hole, your eyes and ears. They just soak it all up, and there's nothing. It just doesn't fill. But what do you do with apathy? Ask, how's it going? In Dostoevsky's Brothers Kamasarov, there's two brothers. There's three brothers in the story, but there's two that are having this conversation, Ivan and Alyosha. And as they're talking, they're talking about divine freedom and human responsibility and all the rest. And they start going down this philosophical talk. And as they're talking, they start asking, do you think God gave us a bit too much freedom? I mean, look around. I feel like you should have tightened it up a little bit. And they're going back and forth. And it's an interesting conversation. Listen to this one sentence though, or two sentences. For the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to have something to live for. Without a stable conception of the object of life, boy, this is it. Without a stable conception of the object of life, man would not consent to go on living. And would rather destroy himself than remain on earth, though he had bread in abundance. Tell me this isn't Seattle. Bread in abundance. The idea being, you've got to have some other greater purpose to live for, some other object of life, a stable conception of the object of life. You got to have more than just food in the pantry and money in the bank. You need a stable conception of the object of life. Do you have that? Because our world feels like this constantly and we all feel like we're lost in the mists all the time and everything is so disorienting. Do you have a stable conception of the object of life? Not, do you have money in your bank? Do you have a stable conception for the object of life? Isaac Watts had the answer. Isaac Watts wrote in the hymn that we all know. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That guy would have read Dostoevsky and gone, yeah, I got an answer. Love so amazing. The whole realm, if the whole realm of nature were mine, 
the furthest star, the smallest cell, if this all was mine, all the angels, all the animals, everything that's ever existed, if it was all mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my, my all. That's somebody that says, I'm not worrying about self-actualization and I'm not trying to keep up with everybody around me. My eyes are fixed on something greater than myself and something greater than what my society puts before me every single day. I have something greater that's taken control of me, that's possessed me. That's given me a vision for how to go about living my life. Demands my soul, my life, my all. You can have it all, Jesus. Because he's saying this in response to see from his head, his hands, his feet. We're not talking about abstract ideas and philosophies. We're talking about the Nazarene nailed to the wood of the cross to separate our sin as far as the east is from the west. Demands my soul, my life, my all. You can have it, Jesus. You can absolutely have it all. I can't give you enough. If everything in creation was mine, it'd be too small. I'd still owe you more. (laughs) Yeah, If that man on the cross really is not just God conscious, but is God, yeah. He demands our souls, our lives, everything. Do you know him? So, Jesus says, I am. I'll I'll preach the sermon now. All right. (laughs) Jesus says, Seven times, I am. And we covered this last couple of weeks. We'll just keep repeating it. But the idea is this. Every time Jesus says, I am, in John's gospel, it's written out in Greek, and it looks like he's stuttering. I, comma, I am the way. I, comma, I am the door. I, comma, I am the resurrection. He's not stuttering. He's taking on the divine name for himself. I am the I am. I'm before all things. I own all things. All things will be held accountable to me in the end. I am. Okay. In today's passage in John 10, it says this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. By the way, that word is truly, truly is amen. So he amens himself twice before he talks. <laughs> Just like, right. This is the truest thing you're ever going to hear. I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Who is Jesus talking about? Who came before me are thieves and robbers. Well, there were certain messianic figures that rose up prior to the New Testament era, after the the Jewish people had been released from captivity and allowed to go back to Israel and reestablish themselves as a people. Some people went back, most stayed in Babylon. But for those that went back, there were several messianic kind of figures that rose up that said like, look to me, follow me, and I'll give you the government you want, the religion you like, and I'll make life work for you. We'll push Rome back a bit. Let's call them a messiah. And Jesus says those guys were liars. They were robbers. They were crooks. 
They couldn't deliver, could they? And here he was, hundreds of years later, they were still living under Roman oppression. They were liars. More than that, he's not just talking about those failed would-be messiahs. He's also condemning the religious leadership of the day. Jesus consistently throughout John's gospel has found butting heads with the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, and they're going back and forth. And Jesus has a problem with these guys because they overtax God's people, and they do a horrible job representing who God is, and they do a horrible job taking care of people. Rather, they abuse people, and they lie to people, and they tie burdens on people's backs, and they don't lift a finger to help, and they grind people down to powder, and they do it all in the name of God. And Jesus gets right in their face and has nothing nice to say to spiritual abusers. He says things like, you're better off with a millstone tied around your neck and drowned on the bottom of a lake than answering to God for the way you've treated God's people. I love that. If you've ever been the victim of spiritual abuse, you're like, yeah, get them. Let them know. Call their number, Jesus. You do your will. So Jesus is here calling them thieves and robbers. And then he says, but I'm the door. And he takes up the metaphor of a shepherd, which is what God does throughout the entire Bible with his people. And it's hardly a flattering image for all of us. Because that means we're all sheep. (laughs) And for those that don't know much about animals, sheep are not very impressive. We're all just a bit dull. And we need a lot of help and a lot of protection and a lot of care and a lot of correction again and again and again and again. So Jesus takes up the metaphor of being a shepherd and we'll get to that next week. But he says, I'm the door. Each day when a shepherd finishes his work, he was to take his sheep to basically this kind of rented corral. And it was usually a, a, a kind of a, a circle with stacked stones all the way around. And you bring your 200 sheep into this corral. And there's no door on it. You just bring them in. But before you bring the sheep in, the shepherd's job is to sit down and personally inspect every single sheep. So some would have gotten injured throughout the day and the shepherd has to take time and bandage the wounds. Some will have briars and things like that stuck in the wall and he's got to remove all that. Some are still hungry and some are still thirsty and some are still needing some kind of care and he has to personally inspect each of his sheep and then admit it into the crowd. Then, after all of that work is done, the shepherd goes to where the door would be, and the shepherd's job is literally to just lay down as the door. I'll do it. Why not? All right. So he lays down as the door, falls asleep, knowing that on this side of him, his sheep are okay, they're safe, they're protected, and on this side of him, are wolves or bandits or people who would jump over the wall to want to steal sheep. So he stays right here as the door and sleeps between the threat and his people. And Jesus says, 
I'm the door. No one can come through into life with God without me. And my responsibility is to keep them. That's the metaphor that Jesus takes up for being the door. He says, I am the door. I'm the door. I'm the door. Everyone else who came before me was a thief. They were a robber. But I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. Who? Anyone. Well, what if they vote that way? Anyone. Well, what if, you know, what, what if they did, what if they did the, the unforgivable sin? Anyone. If anyone will enter through me. If you don't know Jesus today, I'm talking to you. Anyone. anyone will enter by me. Not if anyone will obey the Ten Commandments. Not if anyone will give enough money to the church. Not if anyone will serve at a local charity. Not all these good works. If anyone will enter solely and exclusively by me and me alone. That person will be saved. One philosopher said, I'm not going to complain that there's not two doors open to heaven. I'm just thankful there's one open. Like if I bumped into you on Steamboat Rock, out in the desert, and you were wandering through the desert for three days and haven't had any water, and I have two gallons of water in a, on a backpack, and we bump into one another, and I look at you, and I say, I got some water. And you're like, I'm sorry, I wanted some Gatorade or Prime. I would have to look at you and go, I don't think you're thirsty enough. Don't complain that there's not a hundred doors open. Praise be to God that there's one. And you know it. If anyone will enter by me, he'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from yourself. Save from the consequences of your own sins that you did willfully against God and against your neighbor and against yourself. You'll be saved from those things. And I know this might sound like old-timey religion jargon that you're like, I heard that somewhere in the Midwest growing up. Look, I'm telling you, it's the gospel truth. You'll be saved. You'll be saved from the judgment of sin. What the Bible would call the wrath of God. If anybody will enter through me, 
he'll be saved. but it's through him only. Let me read just a couple of verses. We'll wrap up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's your only door. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through him. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus says, I'm the door. Go through the door. Just go through it. Acts chapter four, verse 12, Peter says, there's no other name under heaven by which people might be saved except at the name of Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says just plainly, there's one mediator, there's one mediator between God and human beings, and it is the man Christ Jesus. There's one. That's why we bow before Jesus. That's why we sing to Jesus. That's why we make much of Jesus. He's our one mediator. That's why we repent before Jesus. That's why we pray to Jesus. That's why we don't call out on every name in Seattle or every other God that's afforded to us, whether it's money or some other means to try to get to an end. We call to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We bow before Jesus and we live our lives in response exclusively to who he is as the son of God. But don't just take his words for it where he says, I am the door. Trust his deeds, the greatest deed being his resurrection from the dead. Here's why you should trust Jesus as the only door. I'll try to remember five of them. Here's one. Joseph of Arimathea, the guy that takes Jesus down off of his cross and gives him, a borrowed to, uh, gives him his tomb to be buried in, in the first century, no one would be walking around giving the name and the address. Joseph of Arimathea, who belonged to the, uh, the party of the Pharisees, no one would be walking around going, go ask him about what he did on Good Friday if it weren't true. There's eyewitnesses everywhere going, well, or people are investigating, like, go talk to him. That's just preserved in the New Testament, going, talk to him. To the women at the scene of the resurrection, as we've heard a hundred times, women's testimony wasn't considered valid in court or anywhere else. And yet the gospel writers keep saying that the women were there first to see Jesus raised from the dead. And, that's be and why is that important? Because the gospel writers were more concerned with telling the truth rather than just preserving social and cultural norms. There's two. We'll see. Uh, three, the apostles stood in Jesus's way on multiple occasions as Jesus said, I will be crucified and resurrected from the dead. And they tried to obstruct his mission to do just that. And they were shocked to find out that he was resurrected from the dead. They didn't go on Sunday morning on Easter and go, oh, of course, he said he was gonna get up from the dead. They didn't do that, did they? They were all hiding and doubting. And even Thomas, the only one that was missing, 
When they went and found him, they're like, no, we actually saw him. He actually is up from the dead. Thomas is like, I still don't buy it. They're like, dude, we saw him. He's really up from the dead. And he's like, I don't buy it. I love Thomas because he acts like the rest of us. Because you know why? I wouldn't buy it either because I've never seen anybody resurrected from the dead. So there's three that tends to persuade me. Four, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is found appearing to upwards of 500 people at one time in multiple locations, meaning nobody's hallucinating. Like 500 people can't hallucinate and see the same thing. Jesus was really up from the dead and people were investigating this stuff. First John says, we handled the word of life. We saw it for ourselves. Oh, and five, to sign it in their own blood as martyrs going, we'd rather give our lives saying, we've seen Jesus up from the dead and we've encountered him up from the dead. I'd rather die than take that back. And it wasn't just one crazy guy was all the apostles and countless other eyewitnesses. For me, I go, I read those things and take those things into account and go, okay, I trust that the historical Jesus really is the Christ of faith and that they're not two different beings, that Christ was not invented by the church. Christ is Lord of the church and the cause of the church and the foundation of the church because we're living out of a historical reality, not just make-believe-ism or something that we wish would be true. Oh, he really is up from the grave, thus validating when he says things like, I'm the door and anybody that goes through me will be saved. I look at him and go, you're the door. And every other Christian stands around and goes, you're right, that you're the door, Jesus. <sighs> How we doing? Okay, we got some thumbs up. Okay, that's, that's like taking laps in a Pentecostal church in Atlanta. It's like, <laughs> really into this, man. Okay. <laughs> When you walk through, I'll wrap up here. When you walk through the gospel, I'd encourage you this week to see every scene and say, that's the door. Or rather, that's our door. That's my door. When you see Virgin Mary walk up to Elizabeth And one's leaping in the womb, John the baptizer, look to Mary and go, oh, that's my door. When you see the infant laying in the cradle, that's my door. When you see the 12-year-old boy teaching in the temple, that's my door. When you see him baptized and the spirit descend and the father say, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased, say, that's my door. When you see him resist temptation in the wilderness, say, that's my door. When you see him feed 5,000, say, that's my door. When you see him walk on the water, say, that's my door. When you see him drive out demons, say, that's my door. When you see him raise the dead, say, that's my door. When you see him touch the lepers and make them well, that's my door. When you see him speak to blind people and suddenly they can see, say, that's my door. And deaf people can suddenly hear, that's my door. When the prostitutes are brought in and forgiven and cleansed, that's my door. 
when religious people that are bullying people and Jesus puts the religious abusers in their place, look to Jesus and go, that's my door. When you see Jesus stand before Pilate, totally silent, not because he has nothing to say, but because his very presence says everything that would ever need to be said, look at him and say, that's my door. When you see him stripped and nailed to the wood of a cross, that's my door. When you see him buried, that's my door. Resurrected from the dead, look to Jesus and say, that's my door. When you see him ascend to the right hand of the Father, that's my door. And when we long and cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, that's my door. I'm looking to Jesus. Every scene that you see in him, wherever you camp out in the gospel this week, say to your soul, that's my door. And friends that are investigating, I, love, I so love that you're here. If you're not a Christian today, thank you for being here. I Seriously, I'm so thankful you'd give time. Um, I'd encourage you, if you're investigating the faith or reinvestigating the faith, here's what I'd encourage you to do. Don't just study the door or contemplate the door or think about the door or critique the door. Go through the door. Go through the door. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know what it's going to be like on the other side of the door. Anselm said it this way. Credo ut intelligum, meaning I believe in order that I may understand. Not I understand and therefore I'll go through the door. I'm going to trust this Nazareth, man from Nazarene, the Nazareth to, to be the door. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to go through the door. And in trusting him and going through, I believe the understanding comes. But if you stand on one side of the door and go, I'm not going through until I understand, you might stand on the doorstep all your life and miss it. So I'd encourage you, yes, study, yes, question, yes, investigate, yes, yes, yes. But go through the door. Go through the door. Okay, thank you for listening. Love you. Um, let's pray, and we'll uh, respond with receiving communion, and worship, and so on. Seriously, thank you for, for listening. Jesus, thank you for being the great door that is open to us. Thank you for being the one door, the only door, and for bringing us to the door. And for those of us that have gone through, we praise you. And for those that are standing on the doorstep today, I ask that you would draw your people in. God, for those of us that have been apathetic or indifferent, forgive us. Blow out the dark clouds and recenter us. For those that find themselves walking in faith, keep our church strong. Jesus, you are our door. And we bless your name. Thank you for how you've changed us. We're not where we want to be. We all have room to grow in our lives. We're thankful that we've crossed through the door and that you don't kick your people out of your family. 
We pray Jesus as the great keeper, the door. You protect our church from everything that would come against it so that we would be a people that live to the praise of your glory. We love you, Jesus, our great door. Amen. Thank you for listening. Um, If our communion servers would take their places, go ahead and stand with me to your feet. Hmm. And um, if you need a moment, if you just kind of need a moment and you want to reflect before you come take communion, that's fine. Uh, Or as you take communion today, take it back to your seat and want to just contemplate for just a moment. Either way, take a second and communicate to your own soul as you hold the bread and dip into the wine or the juice. Remind your soul, Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door. And go through it. Okay? All right. Come receive whenever you're ready.